This program is made possible by members and donors, so huge thanks to everyone who contributes on Patreon to support the show. And now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast. I've been working on another of my series of related episodes without actually mentioning to anyone that it's a series. In recent weeks, we've been talking about a lot of different aspects of big tech and how technology and the big four tech companies are affecting our lives. We learned how they are functioning as modern-day monopolies and should invite antitrust regulation uh, in episode 1259. We learned about how social media helps propagate hate in 1261. We learned about how algorithms are being written into all manner of systems that are helping reinforce human biases in 1266. And today, we'll be looking at the impact on privacy, culture, and democracy itself when technology is built on a system of surveillance capitalism. Clips today come from Democracy Now!, On the Media, The Ralph Nader Radio Hour, and The Zero Hour. Professor, one of the, the points that you make uh, uh, in your book is that so much attention has been focused on uh, the work of Cambridge Analytica, but that you believe that there's a, a much deeper structural problem uh, in, with Facebook than just one company being able to access personal data and then use it for uh, nefarious political ends. Could you talk about the structural issues that you see? And also, you, you mentioned the Philippines. Most people are, are have not heard heard much about how uh, Duterte uh, was helped uh, to uh, win his election uh, by Facebook. If you could give an example of how structurally it might have worked in the Philippines. Look, Cambridge Analytica was a a great story, right? It finally brought to public attention the fact that for more than five years, Facebook had encouraged application developers to get maximal access to Facebook data, to personal data and activity. Not just from the people who volunteered to be uh, watched by these app developers, but all of their friends, right? Which nobody really understood except Facebook itself and the application developers. So thousands of application developers got almost full access to millions of Facebook users for five years. This was basic Facebook policy. This line was lost in the storm over Cambridge Analytica. So Cambridge Analytica was run by Bond villains, right? They look evil. They work for evil people like Kenyatta in Kenya. You know, uh, Steve Bannon helped run the company for a while. It's paid for by Robert Mercer, the you know one of the more evil hedge fund managers uh, in the United States. Uh, you know, it had worked for for Cruz for Ted Cruz's campaign, and then and then uh, for the Brexit campaign, and also for Donald Trump's campaign in 2016. So it's really easy to look at Cambridge Analytica and think of it as this dramatic story, this one-off. But the fact is, Cambridge Analytica is kind of a joke. It didn't actually accomplish anything. It it pushed this weird psychometric model for voter behavior prediction, which no one believes works. Uh, and uh, the fact is, the Trump campaign, the Cruz campaign, and before that, the Duterte campaign in the Philippines, the Modi campaign in India, they all used Facebook itself to target 
voters, either to persuade them to vote or dissuade them from voting, right? These, th this was the basic campaign because the Facebook advertising platform allows you to target people quite precisely in groups as small as 20. You can ba base it on ethnicity and on gender, on interest, on education level, on zip code or other location markers. You can base it on people who are interested in certain hobbies, who, who read certain kinds of books, who have certain professional backgrounds. You can slice and dice an audience so precisely. It's the reason that Facebook makes as much money as it does. Because if you're selling shoes, you would be a fool not to buy an ad on Facebook, right? And that's drawing all of this money away from uh, commercially-based media and journalism. At the same time, it's enriching Facebook. But political actors have figured out how to use this quite deftly. So when Modi ran in 2014, when Duterte ran in 2016, in both cases, Facebook had staff helping them work their system more effectively. Facebook also boasted about the fact that both Modi and Duterte were Facebook savvy, right? The most connected uh, candidates ever. In fact, Narendra Modi has more Facebook friends and followers than any other political figure in the world. He is the master of Facebook. It's not a coincidence that Narendra Modi and Rodrigo Duterte are dangerous nationalist leaders who have either advocated directly for violence against people, their own people, or have sat back and folded their arms as pogroms happened against Muslims you, you uh, in their country. Uh, you mentioned Narendra uh, Modi. I want to turn to a meeting between Mark Zuckerberg and the Indian prime minister at the Facebook right. headquarters in California in 2015. Uh, you were one of the early adopters of the Internet and social media and Facebook. And did you at that point think that social media and the Internet would become an important tool for governing and citizen engagement and foreign policy? When I took to social media, even I actually didn't know that I would become a chief minister at some point, I would become a prime minister at some point. <laughs> So I never ever did think that social media would actually be useful for governance. When I took up and I got onto social media, it was basically because I was curious about technology. And I saw that I'd been trying to understand the world through books, but I think it's a part of human nature that uh, instead of going on to textbooks, if you have a guide, it's, it's far easier. And, in fact, if instead of a guide, uh, if somebody can give you pretty sure suggestions of what to do, it's even better. That, that was Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi talking with Mark Zuckerberg at Facebook headquarters in California in 2015. Uh, Professor, could you talk about the uh, uh, this whole the impact that Modi has had in the internet? He has what? I mean, 43 million Facebook followers. Right. And that doesn't include WhatsApp, right? WhatsApp is the uh, most popular messaging service in India. It's also owned by Facebook, right? And, uh, and it's tremendously important, not just in personal communication, but in harnessing mobs for mob violence, mostly against Muslims, but often against Christians and often against, uh, Hindus who happen to marry or date Muslims. Uh, you know, this sort of vigilante mob violence is breaking out all over India. It's, uh, it's breaking out in Sri Lanka. We've seen the Rohingya, 
uh, massacres and expulsion in in Myanmar, in Burma, uh, often fueled, in fact, in, directly fueled by propaganda spread on Facebook and WhatsApp. And Modi has taken full advantage of this, right? He and his people mastered this technique early on. It's a three-part strategy, which I call the authoritarian playbook. What they do is they use Facebook and WhatsApp to distribute propaganda about themselves, flooding out all other discussion about what's going on in politics and government. Secondly, they use the same sort of propaganda machines, very accurately targeted, to undermine their opponents and critics publicly. And then thirdly, they use WhatsApp and Facebook to generate harassment, the sort of harassment that can put any non-government organization, human rights organization, journalist, scholar, or political party off its game because you're constantly being accused of pedophilia, you're being accused of rape, or you're being threatened with rape, threatened with kidnapping, threatened with murder, uh, which makes it impossible to actually perform publicly in a democratic space. This is exactly what Modi mastered in his campaign in 2014, and in fact, a bit before. And that same playbook was picked up by Rodrigo Duterte in the Philippines, and it's being used all over the world by authoritarian and nationalist leaders to greater or lesser degrees. So in the United States, when Trump's campaign used Facebook almost as effectively to precisely target certain voters in certain states, like Michigan, like Wisconsin, like Pennsylvania, like Florida, and either turn them off from voting or turn them on to voting for Donald Trump when they might not have been otherwise motivated by choosing very targeted specific issues, to, again, to either turn people on or off from voting. That was a sort of soft, light version of, the, of Narendra's authoritarian playbook. We did not see, and we've not seen yet, and hopefully we will not see, the same level of coordinated harassment from the Republican Party. At least we haven't seen it yet. So we, you know, what we are seeing, of course, in a distributed way, uh, anybody who, especially women who are involved in the public sphere, are constantly being uh, 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 assaulted with these messages uh, of all sorts of threats, uh, both public and privately. So, uh, you know, the culture of our democracy and the cultures of democracies around the world are directly threatened by these practices that are not only enabled by Facebook, they're actually accelerated by Facebook. This is Alexander Kogan, the PhD researcher at the heart of this Cambridge Analytica story, the guy who was accused of misappropriating the Facebook data, speaking to the BBC this week. In practice, my best guess is that we were six times more likely to get everything wrong about a person as we were to get everything right about a person. Like, I personally don't think micro-targeting is an effective way to use such data sets. You don't think it could sway an election? I think it could have only hurt the campaign. The Trump campaign, you mean? Any campaign. I think what Cambridge Analytica has tried to sell is magic. And they've made claims that this is incredibly accurate and it tells you everything there is to tell about you. But I think the reality is it's not that. If you sit down and you really work through the st statistics, those claims quickly fall apart. I mean, obviously, Kogan might be kind of backpedaling there, given all the attention his, his work has, has garnered. But um. The reality is, particularly in the political space, it's often very difficult to figure out if something actually works, right? When you're selling shoes online, it's relatively easy to show you an ad for shoes. And then if you go and buy those shoes, to actually connect those two things together and actually look at the return on your investment in advertising. No campaign, no matter how well-funded or sophisticated, can actually really tell if their campaign drove voters to the ballot box and made them vote or not. 
So the last few days, you've been making the media rounds explaining why the secret sauce wasn't either secret or particularly saucy. But, you know, at least a year ago, the New York Times ran a story saying that very same thing. We also learned that the uh, Ted Cruz presidential campaign ditched the models because they were unreliable. So why do you suppose that you were at pains to go through this yet again? To be honest, people would rather believe that dark, mysterious forces using some diabolical technology made evil happen rather than, you know, a more mundane story. You know, I actually made a sort of joke tweet about that. You know, what are we going to believe? That the center-left parties in the U.S. and the U.K. were pathetically complacent uh, in reacting to global capitalism and spurred a populist revolt that caused Trump and Brexit to happen? Or or do we believe <laughs> the protocols of the elders of Facebook story where somehow ad targeting came out of nowhere and elected a, you know, an autocrat? And everyone's just like two, two all the way, right? Two is the one that we're, we're going to go with. I, I think there's other forces here more than the, the reality of it that's causing all this media attention. Okay, that's one of the week's journalistic misdirections, the red herring. Part two is what we've missed about Facebook that the Trump campaign absolutely did exploit to run what turned out to be an astonishingly efficient social media campaign. It has to do with the Facebook algorithm, and this is really kind of remarkable, the actual cash value of being inflammatory. Please explain, for starters, the auction bidding system. Right. This is a key part of how this whole mediascape works that the public doesn't understand and frankly should. So how does the auction process work? I think the best way might be explaining it via metaphor with the regular feed, which I think most people understand. In newsfeed, you're obviously not seeing all the stories and posts and shares that all your friends have put out there. Facebook actually ranks them for you because otherwise it would be a torrent of information that you can't parse. And so Facebook uses a model, an, an algorithm, that calculates how likely you are to engage with that piece of content. And by engage, we mean share it yourself, click on it, comment on it. Anything you interact with, they will tend to show you more of. What I think people don't understand is that that same dynamic plays out on the advertising side. In other words, Facebook also calculates, based on what it knows about you, which ads you're likely to interact with. Ads on Facebook are, are not just like ads in a, in a newspaper on TV. They often appear as a regular Facebook story, right? So you can share them, you can comment on them. It, it appears like a regular post inside your feed. What I think people don't realize is that that engagement metric affects whether that ad's going to show up in your feed and also how much that ad ends up costing to the advertiser. And weirdly, it costs the advertiser less if people click on it more. Exactly, because at the end of the day, Facebook is optimizing for what in the trade is called CPM. That's cost per mill, cost per thousand ads. After all is said and done, a politician or a product or whatever that embraces a rhetorical strategy that, for, for better or worse, causes lots of engagement, they will either get more media for the same amount of money or get the same media for less money than they otherwise would if they weren't sort of clickbaity. So if I understand this right, the business model of valuing engagement actually offers an advantage to incendiary ads and so-called fake news, right? Yes, to the extent that negative rhetoric drives more engagement than, say, more nuanced or tempered rhetoric, then indeed it would fare better on the Facebook ad system, yes. Okay, that's one thing uh, that the Trump campaign exploited about Facebook. Another is something that you were in charge of, a feature called custom audiences, and later something called lookalike audiences. Explain how they leveraged their investment with them. Right. Custom audiences is a sort of a, a fancy marketing name for Facebook joining to the outside world of data. 
I mean, a simple example of this that all of your listeners have probably had, if you go browse the internet and you go shop for something or whatever and you go back to Facebook and you see that same pair of shoes or that same handbag you were shopping for appear inside Facebook, that's what I mean. There's this outside world of data that historically didn't enter Facebook, but starting in 2012, there was a couple different technologies. One of them was custom audiences that allowed that to happen. Effectively, what happens is the advertiser quite literally uploads a spreadsheet with names, email addresses, phone numbers, etc. And then Facebook tries to find those users inside Facebook. It's probably the most common tool that savvy advertisers with lots of data use on Facebook. So what would that mean in the political context? Well, voter files, for example, that I understand have things like names and addresses could be uploaded to Facebook. Donors who actually donated money to Trump, all of those people like at an individual granular level would be targetable on Facebook. On top of that comes the second product you mentioned, which is lookalike audiences. And this addresses a really deep need for most advertisers. Most advertisers have some set of customers or voters that they know are into their brand or into their products. Question is, how do I find more of them? And so after I've uploaded a custom audience, and, and again, that's based on my email list, people who have come to my site, Facebook then finds people who are like that. And here is where the true value of Facebook's data comes in. It turns out, you know, what they care about is not your photos or your conversations with your coworkers or your partner. What they really care about and what they use their data for is figuring out other people who are like you. That's a key thing. I mean, the reality is if you've got five friends, more than likely they have the same consumption patterns or the same political views that you do. And via the magic of Facebook data, you can expand an initial targeting list into a yet bigger one. Okay, so is this just marketers and politicians using finer and finer targeting as they'd be expected to? Or is all of this data overlaying, the data joining, whether by businesses or candidates or governments, putting us all at a high risk of utter loss of privacy? I think you put your finger on it. You know, even I, former ad tech mercenary that I am or was, I'm willing to concede that I think politics is definitely special, right? Selling you on Brexit is different than selling you on a pair of shoes. And if the government sees fit to regulate political advertising differently than it does regular advertising, that's not the craziest thing in the world. And so if what comes out of this whole Cambridge blowup is that the rules that typically apply to conventional media and political advertising also apply to Facebook, I think that would be just fine. But, you know, once you've taken this genie out of the bottle or this toothpaste out of the tube, it's hard to put back in. And so I, I don't see politicians who, by the way, are themselves the ones who would cook up the regulation, regulating the very thing that put them in power. In these dark times, there aren't a whole lot of unambiguously positive things you can do to make the world a measurably better place, but there is at least one piece of low-hanging fruit that I always recommend. To help with our shift to a renewable energy future, we can sign up for renewable energy in our homes and offices. Depending on where you live, renewable energy may even be cheaper than the old fossil fuel sources, and of course, you only have to sign up once and reap the rewards effortlessly, indefinitely. If you live or work in New York, York, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Maryland, D.C., Delaware, Illinois, Massachusetts, or Ohio, you can sign up with the clean energy company I've partnered with, Clean Choice Energy. To sign up and support the show by letting them know that I sent you, just visit cleanchoiceenergy.com slash best. You can easily find that link right in the show notes on the device you're using to listen right now, or you'll find it on the sidebar of the homepage at bestfullf.com. It'll make you feel good every time you see your electricity bill, so don't wait. There's nothing stopping you from signing up to use renewable energy right now, and it's easier than you think. Again, visit cleanchoiceenergy.com slash best to get started. When it comes to energy, now you have a choice.
I wanted, I wanted to ask you about the, um, the political economy underlying, not uh, uh, social media uh, per, per se, because, I mean, I think your book is, it has to be, in my mind, uh, one of the most, the most important book, nonfiction book of this year, if not of the last okay. decade, because so many people use Facebook, 2.2 billion people uh, around the world now uh, use it. Uh, and so it's, it's extremely important for the users, especially, to look at the mechanics of this monster that's been created over the last uh, uh, decade or so. Uh, but one of the things that it seemed to me, uh, to some degree, you didn't address is the issue of the political economy uh, underlying the, uh, all of this social media. I, I think, for instance, of... Um, uh, Julian Assange's book, Cypherpunks, where he talks about the dangers of the Internet. And he also goes into this issue of the difference between the platonic view of how how the Internet and, and social media works and the actual physical underpinnings, the cable systems, the satellites, uh, the physical structures that make this social media possible, and how governments and corporations have, in effect, hijacked this privatization of, of, of the Internet, of this communications medium. I'm wondering if you could address how government policy made the development of a Google or a, uh, a Facebook uh, possible. Look, back in the late 1990s, we were sold a vision, a dream of an internet that was a separate phenomenon from our real world. We called it cyberspace. We used spatial metaphors for it. Um, we had people like John Perry Barlow uh, rhapsodizing about the, the, the fact that rules don't apply and this, uh, this space will be exempt from uh, the, the, both the prejudices of regular human beings and the limitations of the state that the state puts on us. Um, that never really existed. It was always a dream. Uh, uh, the Internet was uh, commercialized and structured almost immediately, not extremely at the, at the beginning. Um, and if you remember in the early part of the 21st century, we did have this proliferation of voices, largely through blogs. That was the dominant form of expression for um, amateurs, for uh, voices yet to be heard. Uh, for emerging voices, for minority voices, uh, to, um, to generate audience and put their message out. Uh, and it also meant that in those rather innocent days, you could discover new voices from other voices, right, through links and recommendations. But nothing was structured by algorithms and nothing was fueled by advertising, at least not effectively, right? In those days, web advertising didn't make anybody any money. Well, Google changed that, and quickly after that, Facebook changed that, right? So by around 2002, Google figured out how to target ads quite effectively based on the search terms that you had used. By about 2007, Facebook had, was starting to build ads into its platform as well, and because it had so much more rich information on our interests and our connections and our habits, and even once we put up Facebook on our mobile phones, our location, right, it, tra it could trace us to whatever store we went into, whatever church or, or synagogue or mosque we went into, it could know everything about us. Uh, at that point, targeting ads became incredibly efficient and effective. That's what drove the massive revenues for both Facebook and Google. That's why Facebook and Google have all the advertising money these days, right? It's why the, the traditional public sphere is so impoverished, 
why it's so hard to pay reporters a living wage these days. Because Facebook and Google is taking all that money, or taking all that money. Because they developed something better than the display ad of a newspaper or a magazine, frankly. But there was just no holding back on that. As a result, once Facebook goes big, once Twitter emerges around 2009... But if I can interrupt you for a second on on this point, uh, uh, their ability to monetize our use. Also, doesn't it depend on government's refusal to defend privacy rights, uh, policy decisions that our leaders make that people's privacy rights no longer matter? Absolutely. Now, that varies across the globe, of course. In Europe, there are much stronger data protection laws. There always have been, but as of May 2018, they're much better codified and clearer. Uh, and so Facebook and Google have a harder time targeting people uh, effectively in, in Europe than they do in the rest of the world, especially in North America. We have no real protections of our data. We have no rights to our own data in the United States, effectively. Um, we are merely rats in a cage or cows in a pasture to Facebook and Google in the United States and in Canada and Australia and South Africa and Brazil and India and most of the world. It really, Europe is the exception in this case. And fairly soon, the UK won't even be part of that exception. So uh, it's, uh, it's a really sad state of affairs. Many of us for more than a decade have been calling for strong data protection, so that we would be informed as to what our data is being used for, uh, who it gets our data, and we would be informed and asked for explicit permission every time a company shares the, our data or gives our data or sells our data to another party. It's been impossible to get those legislative proposals through legislatures, largely because the lobbies against data protection go beyond Facebook and Google. They include Verizon and AT&T and T-Mobile. They include Comcast, right? Some of the most uh, powerful companies in the world are, are, um, are wedded to this massive surveillance capitalism model that has enriched Facebook and Google. They see, right, Comcast sees its only hope to be in the advertising business, to compete against Facebook and Google, to do exactly what Facebook and Google have been doing. So Comcast very much wants to know as much about you as Facebook does. It's not there yet, but it hopes to get there. So that's one of the reasons we're up against formidable political foes when we try to argue for basic human dignity and the ability for for people to have some say over how they're being used and abused. This is an encyclopedic book, listeners. It runs 650 pages, and Professor Zuboff has taken the discussion of the virtual reality, internet, surveillance economy to very deep levels of analysis. It's actually hard to encapsulate the book, but I've got two little excerpts before we get into the discussion, Professor Zuboff, from your book. On page 20, You say, if industrial capitalism dangerously disrupted nature, what havoc might surveillance capitalism wreck on human nature? And you elaborate that in the many pages. And then on page 21, you say, surveillance capitalism is best described as a coup from above, not an overthrow of the state, but rather an overthrow of the people's sovereignty 
and a prominent force in the perilous drift toward democratic deconsolidation that now threatens Western liberal democracies. Only we, the people, can reverse this course, first by naming the unprecedented, and you emphasize the unprecedented, then by mobilizing new forms of collaborative action, the crucial friction that reasserts the primacy of a flourishing human future as the foundation of our information civilization. If the digital future is to be our home, then it is we who must make it so. Now, in reading through your book, I said to myself, let's see if Professor Zuboff gets down to the contracts. And lo and behold, you did. You want to describe the web of contracts that people don't even read, that tie them up, not just with Facebook and Instagram and Google, but the web that deals with licenses of all these zillions of apps, etc. Because one of the takeaways from your book is that people have lost the right to object. They've lost the right of remedy when they are abused in this surveillance capitalist economy. Could you describe how people are tied up by these fine print contracts instantly? Yes. Well, there are a couple of key things that our listeners should know. One is the so-called terms of service contracts, the things that we, we have to click the little box if we're going to use the utility of the application or the website or the product, whatever it may be, the service, whatever it may be. These are fundamentally illegitimate. And despite the fact that most scholars agree on this and have agreed on this for a long time, the courts have upheld these notice and consent so-called contracts as lawful. But indeed, this kind of structure has a long history, and I trace it to the history of conquest. When the conquistadores first came to the Caribbean, they brought with them an edict that was fashioned by the Spanish law courts. It was called the requerimiento, the requirement. And they would go to a village where, of course, people had never seen Spaniards and they did not understand Spanish. They would read this edict, and in Spanish they would say, if you don't agree with us, we're going to kill you. And no one would know what they were talking about. And, of course, the indigenous people did not want to be subjugated. And they resisted. And in many cases, they were killed or tortured or in other ways turned to slaves. This is the modern equivalent of that kind of conquest. We're asked to agree with something that we cannot understand. And we essentially have no choice because... There is no way to participate in society today unless we go through these channels. So all of us click on this little I agree box in a cynical way because we know we have no choice. In the past, we have thought about our participation in private organizations. The great economist Albert Hirschman wrote about the ideas of exit, voice, and loyalty, that when we're participating in private organizations, We have the option of exit, we have the option of voice, or we can agree with what's going on and be loyal to it. Well, in this case, these so-called contracts do not provide us with exit because typically we need to go forth and use the service or product. They certainly don't provide us with voice. (laughs) There's no way to talk back to these companies. 
And very few of us feel loyalty. We simply feel trapped. You quote a prominent law professor who's the expert on all this, uh, Margaret Radin, taught at University of Michigan Law School. She's now at University of Toronto Law School. And here's what she says. She calls these click-on contracts, which people not only don't read, they often can't even get to read. They're so voluminous. She calls this private eminent domain, a unilateral seizure of rights without consent. She regards such contracts as a moral and democratic degradation of the rule of law and the institution of contract, a perversion that restructures the rights of users granted through democratic processes substituting for them the system that the firm wishes to impose. People enter a legal universe of the company's devising in order to engage transactions with the firm. I've called this incarceration. So, you know, this is such a deep book, Professor Zuboff, that I have to try to enlist the interest of the listeners by citing how you talk to your children about this. And on page 525, and permit me to read a section here, here's how Professor Zuboff talks to her children. Quote, when I speak to my children or an audience of young people, I try to alert them to the contingent nature of the thing that has us by calling attention to ordinary values and expectations before surveillance capitalism began its campaign of psychic numbing. Quote, This is what you say to your children. It is not okay to have to hide in your own life. It is not normal. It is not okay to spend your lunchtime conversations comparing software that will camouflage you and protect you from continuous unwanted invasion. Five trackers blocked. Four trackers blocked. Fifty-nine trackers blocked. Facial features scrambled. Voice disguised. Quote, I tell them that the word search has meant a daring existential journey, not a finger tap to already existing answers. That, quote, friend, end quote, is an embodiment mystery that can only be forged face-to-face and heart-to-heart, and that recognition is the glimmer of homecoming we experience in our beloved's face, not, quote, facial recognition, end quote. I say that it is not okay to have our best instincts for connection and information exploited by a draconian quid pro quo that holds these goods hostage to the pervasive strip search of our lives. It is not okay for every move, emotion, utterness, and desire to be cataloged, manipulated, and then used to surreptitiously hurt us through the future tense for the sake of someone else's profit. These things are brand new, I tell them. They are unprecedented. You should not take them for granted because they are not okay, end quote. Well, how many parents talk to their children that way? How many parents (laughs) are are afraid of their children when it comes to this new technology? Yes, well, you know, part of the problem is we're all so busy. We're all working. We are harried. We have so many responsibilities. And for folks who are older, my age, your age, Ralph, you know, some of this stuff may seem just so distant that we don't feel authoritative about it. But I want parents to trust their instincts. I want parents to demand that their children be present, 
and I want parents to read about what is this frontier that we've sent our children to. We've allowed our children to be the, the pioneers of this digital frontier that is now owned and operated by private capital. That was not the intention at the beginning. We thought that the internet was going to be an empowering place of, of voice and connection and the democratization of knowledge. And for many of us as parents, we just haven't been able to keep track of what it really is and what it really means and the effect that it really has on our children. So I do have a chapter in the book called of Life in the Hive, where I write extensively about all the research that's been done to show exactly how this is affecting our kids. And it's not pretty. It's not pretty because our children should be you know, developing their own inner resources and their own sense of identity and their own sense of a unique self. And those are precisely the kinds of inner experiences that are inhibited in the social network that encourages kids to compare themselves to one another and to see themselves through the other's eyes. So here's something for parents to remember. We've heard people like Eric Schmidt, the former CEO of Google, to say, you know, if you have something to hide, then maybe you shouldn't be doing it. And my response to that is anyone who has nothing to hide is nothing. Because what we have to hide is the inner resource, the sense of our inwardness, the sense of our own identity, where we develop our understanding of right and wrong, where we develop our moral sensibility and our judgment and our courage. These are things that are hidden because they are inward and they are meant to be inward. That's what makes us strong. That's what makes us autonomous. That's what makes us able to participate as true citizens in a democratic society. So hiding is not a bad thing in that sense. It's a good thing. And we should not have to hide from the watchers. If you would love a way to financially support this show without it costing you anything, there's good news. You can support the show by bookmarking and using my affiliate link every time you shop with that company online. You know, basically the one company online. Lots of evil tendencies. Owned by the richest dude in the world. That one. Chances are you shop there at least now and then, maybe even a lot. Perhaps you make a lot of business-related purchases, I know some of you do. Or maybe you have a standard selection of home goods you get delivered regularly. In any case, you might have some mixed feelings about it, and you'd be right to. But if you do end up using the site, at least you can help siphon off some of that corporate blood money to help support the production of this show. Your shopping experience will be identical to usual, and it won't cost you a dime more. You can get the affiliate link from the show notes on the device you're using to listen right now, or you can find it on the sidebar of the homepage at bestofleft.com. You can bookmark the link so you can set it and forget it while continuing to support us into the future. It helps more than you think, I promise it does, and the more who join in, the more it helps. So thanks for taking the time. A lot of people, myself included, might say that the world would be a better place if we had more engagement in real life and less in social media. 
But what would the world be like if real life became more like social media? Our next guest has written a very interesting piece on that topic. In fact, it is called, uh, let me get the headline right, IRL, that's in real life, ads are taking scary inspiration from social media. Uh, Yael Grauer is a freelance tech journalist. She's an investigative reporter. She's co- She covers this kind of stuff, online privacy, security, digital freedom, all that stuff, hacking, math, mass surveillance, stuff we talk about a lot on this show. She's written for a lot of great publications, including Wired, The Intercept, Motherboard, Slate, etc. Uh, she also teaches workshops on these issues, and uh, I think this is important. She serves as as uh, the Trollbusters Director of Education, designing resources and curriculum to help women journalists stay safer online, and it is rough for women journalists online. So uh, without any further ado, Yael Grauer, uh, thanks for coming on the program. Thanks so much for having me. And am I uh, pronouncing your name more or less right, your first name or last Yes. Okay, good. Okay. Um, so tell us, uh, the sub head for your piece in medium technology was the billboards are watching you. So it makes me think of those old, from the old, uh, like Scooby-Doo where the painting, the eyes would follow you around the room. Uh, <laughs> but it's a little more sinister than that, I guess, maybe tell us about, uh, what you found out. Okay. So what I found out is that there are advertisements, uh, billboard ads that are integrating facial recognition, location data, and AI um, using your mobile phone. Uh, and I don't know if it's quite as sinister as what you're thinking, because it's not like there's a person on the camera following you around at all right. times. But they are targeting people based on criteria like age, gender, ethnicity, etc., just like they do online. Um, and this isn't and like exactly a new thing. Um, there, like a decade ago, the New York Times talked about billboards with little cameras in there that could analyze your facial features and serve you targeted ads based on what they thought your age and gender was. Um, but it's, I think it's probably become more sophisticated um, and kind of creepy. Honestly. Yeah, no, no, I do think it's creepy. I, I No, I don't think there's somebody watching, you know, uh, uh, in some room somewhere like, I don't know, person of interest or something. I think that, uh, but I do think it's intrusive and creepy. And I think that a lot of people, it's got a very Blade Runner vibe to it too. But I think a lot of people don't realize, first of all, that this technology even exists to do it. So I think if you ask a lot of people on the street, many of them, it wouldn't even occur to them that A, that their cell phone is accessible to something you know, physically near them, but separate from them, and B, that so much personal information about you can be pulled off your cell phone in the moment like that and then used to generate an ad. Yeah. And I think that's kind of, if you talk to some of these companies, they always kind of hedge a little and they're like, well, there's no personally identifiable data and, and you know, we're just looking at it in aggregate. But the more you dig into it, the more it seems like, um, you know, you can, in fact, probably match, you know, mobile IDs to individuals. And there are people that are retargeted after they saw billboards. So a lot of this is, um, or they'll say, um, you know, you can't prove that they kind of hedge it a little and they kind of come up with their own definitions of like what they consider private and what they consider aggregate and what's personal data. Um, and I, I think a lot of people don't really trust them very much because a lot of what 
the industry has said has ended up being false. Right. Yeah, I think so. I think that's pretty much true. And um, I, we're seeing that now just this week with the release of the emails that uh, that were obtained in uh, in Europe or in Great Britain uh, from Facebook. It's uh, uh, really have to do with somewhat different issues in those cases. But I think it's become uh, accepted that maybe tech companies are not telling us the truth all the time, number one. And number two, I guess I would say uh, that it seems to me that the fact that the, even if it's true, even if they are, for example, choosing not to uh, pull personal personal identifier information at this moment and are instead keeping to general demographics, age, race. First of all, that's that's doesn't feel right. And I think mm -hmm. there should be a national discussion about whether that is right. And secondly, the fact that they're do do it, not doing it now doesn't mean that they couldn't do it at some point in the future, right? Right. Yeah, exactly. And there's also, um, there's been cases, like I talked about REI in the article where they uploaded their own customer information through data management companies. So they were able to get, you know, they can tell what locations do those customers frequent? How often do they walk into stores? And I think a lot of these companies do have these really long privacy policies that you can sort through and they'll say like, oh, you can opt out, but if you want your old data opted out, you have to send a different email and go through these other companies that we partner with and we're not responsible for X, Y, Z. And it just gets really tricky. So I'm always a little wary when um, companies say like, you know, we don't have PII because that doesn't necessarily mean that it can't be um, combined with other information to get that PII if they decide that it's valuable. And also because, um, a lot of companies talk about their easy opt-out policies, but when you dig into it, it doesn't really seem that easy. Well, and a lot of times they don't really opt you. Well, no, I wouldn't say a right. lot of times, but there's recorded uh, times that they haven't done that. I guess, uh, and PII, I, I assume, means a personal, personally identifying information or something like that? Right, yeah, personally. And there's different definitions of it. I think the EU has a different definition than the US. So what people consider personally identifiable information, like, for example, is the mobile ID on your phone PII? Like, I think in the EU it is, and in the US it isn't, you know? And so, um, yeah, it gets really tricky because they're not using, it's not like um, they're using HIPAA, like medical privacy laws to decide, you know, what is considered identifiable and how hard is it to re- associate people with that data that you have separated. Um, so it's kind of unclear. So that's the interesting thing about this is that like, I feel like there's very little transparency from the companies. Like they're very vague about what they're actually doing and how and who they're working with. Um, and yet they have all this data about people. And they want us to trust them. Uh, hmm. uh, <laughs> now, now let, let's, uh, let's talk a little bit of just for a moment. I don't want to get overly technical, but uh, how do they do this? What sort of technology are they using to pull this information from one's phone? Uh, well, if you if you think of it like um, it's actually kind of similar to trackers on mobile apps where users don't really know who they're giving their data to or what that data is. But um, there's like mobile ID numbers that are associated with your phone. And uh, and so obviously these companies want to target they want to know which billboard locations are the most effective um, and which demographics to target. Um, so they'll, um, and then these companies kind of run it through 
it's hard to kind of break down because there's a lot of moving parts and different people that are doing different things. And they all will say like, well, we don't do location data. We just do X, Y, Z. So it's not entirely clear. There's sort of like a black box of how exactly things are happening. But one thing I did notice that I thought was interesting was um, people were like, oh, we only give this information to uh, companies in aggregate. And I'm like, what if you want to retarget somebody? What if like I saw somebody in my demographic saw a billboard and you want to retarget me on my phone with an ad to get me to go to a store that's nearby um, that, you know, was also on the billboard. And then if companies do do that, then they get the uh, mobile IDs of anybody who like clicked on that ad. So they mm-hmm. are, in fact, getting your ID, your mobile right. ID. And, uh, and so it kind of seems like companies will be like, oh, yeah, we don't do that. We don't do that unless you, you're paying enough. And then you do get all this additional information. Well, um, in other words, they do do it, and the rest, right? Yeah. yeah, I mean, there's a whole industry behind it, behind linking, you know, your the physical world information that you have with the actual brick and mortar businesses you're visiting in real time, because they want a piece of that pie. So they're going to take. I think advertisers, I would argue, would take any window of technology, anything that they can to make money off that data. Um, well, and yeah, and that's that's. Use it. That's definitely been the experience, and excuse me for interrupting there, I thought you were done, but, uh, and again, we're talking with Yael Grower about her very interesting piece in Medium Technology about billboards that, and uh, advertisements in real life, real space, that know something about you and change accordingly. Let's talk about some examples, okay, because I think during this year's Fashion Week in New York City, you write a digital billboard ad for New Balance used AI technology to de- detect and highlight pedestrians wearing "quote unquote" exceptional outfits. Talk about a subjective. Um, I didn't click on your link. I have to confess, but talk about a subject subjective assessment. I think this is not exceptional what I'm wearing because. Uh, I wear it every day, basically, some variation of it. But, you know, that that's what made me think of Blade Runner, you know, the scene where the ads were, you know, the, the sort of 3D hologram seems to know who you are. And a billboard, you also write a billboard advertisement for the Chevy Malibu recently targeted drivers on Interstate 88 in Chicago, and you're from Chicago, I understand, by identifying the brand of vehicle they were driving, then serving ads, touting its own features and comparisons. So they were actually, um, they were actually basically, I guess, saying your car stinks compared to ours. <laughs> hey, you in that crappy uh, Hyundai, you should be getting a Chevy Malibu. And Badoo, a Manchester startup, that admits it was inspired by Minority Report. I guess they didn't realize that Minority Report is a dystopian future. Is using facial recognition to serve ads through its billboards. So, what does it recognize facially? Um. Oh. Okay. So, which one of the? Sorry, That's Bidu. Uh, Bidu. The Bidu. Oh, yeah. That one was the one that. Well, according to its website, and that's what's interesting about these is if you click on the articles for. Some of the things you mentioned, a lot of them will be on like these ad websites that are like kind of breathlessly promoting it. Like, look how cool this is. Right. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the Badoo, it said that it could um, let advertisers target people based on their age, their gender, their hair color, clothing color, um, whether they had glasses or mustaches and stuff like that. Um, so, yeah, that's a. Um, and then 
that was I think they're actually based in Manchester and then they got a contract uh, to install its screens across South Korea um, and yeah they use facial recognition to they have like um they have what they call a Badoo box which has the cameras and AI that plugs into the HDMI port of the screen um, and uh, yeah yeah I think that one's creepy <laughs> yeah oh, it's super and, and you're right I'm, I'm <laughs> clicking on it now and it's like it's saying so it's basically touting it, even though it's not an ad um, industry publication. Uh, 10,000 screens. Oh, they, uh, you know, I was thinking Blade Runner. I might have been thinking Minority Report that after watching computerized billboards adjust and personalized content for Tom Cruise's character. In, in oh, life. right. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I don't know. What's your takeaway on all this? I, you mentioned creepy, and I, I, I will definitely co sign that description, but. Uh, in terms of, uh, are there public policy or like social concern issues? Should we be, uh, shouldn't we be talking about this? Um, I mean, I think so. I think it's important. <laughs> yeah. I, I think like sometimes companies will think like, oh, this is kind of cool. Like the one, um, the one on fashion week, um, which actually took a lot of work to, you know, it took like weeks of driving around with a camera on a vehicle to build a database of colors and patterns and identify what was an exception. So I think they thought it would be cool for people to be like, oh, exception spotted. But I don't know. I think like it, it's also harder with billboards and phones. I think like on my on your laptop, I use a lot of tracking blockers like I use privacy badger and etc and it's easier to find ways to kind of block this so i don't know i definitely think like if nothing else it should be opt-in not like oh we want people to opt out <laughs> so. well yeah i i think all this technology I, I i couldn't agree with you more i think all this technology should be opt-in and it certainly shouldn't be well you go to the corner you know drugstore and all of a sudden you know everything is is customizing itself to you i'm capable like you i think you probably are of holding two thoughts in my head at one time one that i admire the ingenuity that went into creating that and i kind of think we should put the brakes on this and have a conversation as a society about how this stuff ought to work i mean the 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 money quote for me in, in all the links that you provided is uh barry frey president and ceo of the digital place-based advertising association they even have their own association i guess uh, and this is an advertising aid. Print is down. TV is down. Desktop viewership is down. Media inside the home is fragmented as best. So basically what he's saying is that people are running away from all this stuff that does this creepy interaction with you. So let's take the creepy action out to where they're running to try to get away from it. That was that was mm -hmm. maybe not a fair interpretation, but that was, you know, my and in, my interpretation of it and i guess i don't know do you have any closing thoughts uh yeah i mean i don't know if i think it's something we need to look at because i don't know if people are as creeped out by it as we are like i think it's disturbing and there's all sorts of implications that people aren't aware of but i do remember reading a few survey that said that people are willing to give up some privacy for perks or free things um so i don't know but i definitely think that the industry kind of needs to take a step back and look at like, if there are people that don't have an issue with it, then make it opt-in, and they can opt into it.
Do we have to do this or are we forced to do it? The IRS, for example, now doesn't want to send you a social security check. They're forcing you to go to a bank or a credit union and open up an electronic account to the profit of these institutions. There's co coercion everywhere. For example, when I say to people, why don't you pay cash or check? Well, we can't because we can't rent a car. We can't use FedEx. The companies force us to do this. And so there's a coercion here that is in increasing in intensity to a point where it's clear what these credit corporations want done is to eliminate cash and checks so they can have you completely incarcerated. Once they have you in a credit debit economy, you've lost your freedom. I mean, in a very concrete sense, you've lost the ability to say no. You got to pay 35 bucks for a bounce check, which costs them a buck, the bank. You got to pay all these penalties, late fees. All these fine print contracts can be changed unilaterally without your consent. They block you from going into court, which we have as a constitutional right, but we're deemed to give it up because we've signed onto these contracts that nobody reads. So I think there's a coercion here. There's a complicity, to be sure. There's a heightened awareness of overvaluing convenience, but they're creating facts on the ground, Professor Dubois. I couldn't agree with you more, Ralph. And that's precisely why it is so difficult for the average person who's, you know, trying to get through their lives, you know, drop the kids off at daycare and get to the job and get all the other things done and manage the household. It is almost impossible to effectively participate right now and not go through these channels. But the thing is that even were that to be the case, even if we were, you know, shunting people as we've seen, you know, in the airline industry, for example, you used to be able to talk to a person and figure out your trip and so forth. A long time ago, you're shunted to the internet and you've got to do it that way because that's the low cost solution. Even if we were coerced because of cost, that doesn't necessarily mean that we're coerced into these channels that have now become channels of surveillance for the growing power, knowledge, and power of the surveillance capitalist firms. Were it not for surveillance capitalism, this would not be as dire and dangerous as it is in your description. So there are two separate issues here. One is we're forced onto the technology because it's less expensive, but the other is in being forced into the technology, we're also being forced into the arms of a unique economic logic that thrives on the unilateral claiming of our experience for its behavioral data to create predictions about our behavior that it sells to business customers, that's how it makes its money. So. We're being forced into the arms of private capital as well as into the arms of this technological apparatus. And one of the key messages of my book is that these are not the same thing. Surveillance capitalism is not the same as digital technology. We can imagine the, the whole digital architecture without surveillance capitalism, but we can't imagine surveillance capitalism without the digital. So that's why I believe we have an opportunity as citizens to interrupt and outlaw surveillance capitalism as the dominant 
economic logic. Whereas if we did that, that would create a different kind of space for us to have true competition using digital technology in ways that we're comfortable with and that we're even happy with and that truly do enrich and empower us. We've just heard clips today, starting with Democracy Now! in two clips, discussing how Facebook has become a threat to democracy. On the Media looked past the Cambridge Analytica story at how Facebook really helped Trump. The Zero Hour told the story of billboards that watch you. And the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, in two parts, explained the age of surveillance capitalism. Members will be getting a bonus episode with additional discussion from Ralph Nader and the Zero Hour, talking about how the internet was always built to be a spy machine, and the future of surveillance capitalism leading towards corporate and government mass behavior modification straight out of Black Mirror. To hear that and all of our bonus content, sign up as a full member on Patreon at the $6 level, though if that's too steep for you, still consider supporting our work and getting the show ad-free for only 2 bucks a month. And of course, if that all sounds like jump change, we have higher levels as well and will happily accept as much cash as you care to throw our way. And remember that our weekly poll to help choose the topics we cover each week are free to everyone. You can simply follow the show on Patreon, no financials involved, and take part in the poll each weekend to help guide the course of the show. Visit patreon.com slash bestofleft for all the details. Of course, you can find that link in the show notes on the device you're using to listen. And now, we'll hear from you. Hey, Jay, this is Nick from California. I've just listened. I'm a little bit behind, and I just listened to the one about big data and predictive policing. And I think there are several issues that are kind of getting intertwined during that show. When you have these algorithms, when you have statistical formula uh, make predictions about people, clinical judgments, the studies show reliably that they uh, make more accurate judgments Uh, than clinicians, or at very least the same. So there is actually a lot of validity, which you you did play a clip of someone making that argument in the main show, which is great because there actually is a lot of potential utility to this. So I think that's one issue, and I think that should be discussed independently of the pitfalls that it's coming up against, which is, for instance, the fact that these algorithms are not transparent, that people don't have access to them. I think that's a real problem. So even though I might be in favor of a data-driven process, you know, in the future, the fact that you're reporting that these things are not transparent is, is deeply problematic to me. So that's another issue that is separate. It's like even if they work, they still need to be transparent to make sure that there's not bias in them or, you know, we know what that bias is, et cetera. So that's a real problem. And it really opened my eyes to that. And I definitely champion that these things need to be made. Um, we need to be made aware of them. And then there's also just the other issue of the fact that they're asking the wrong questions with these with these tools. So, I mean, paradoxically, you know, when you're asking if someone is likely to reoffend, you would think that you, you would find out if they're more likely to reoffend and then you would 
then give that person, you would spend more of societal resources trying to make sure they don't reoffend, right? Like if you knew that I was at a higher risk for reoffending than you, we both committed the same crime, you would think, okay, well, we'll take the person who's more likely to reoffend and spend more resources on them to fix them, to help them, to make them less, you know, less likely to reoffend. But actually, we use that data then to throw people in jail for longer, to, to throw them away for longer, which, according to the episode, is dem- demonstrably makes them more likely to reoffend. So it's like, let's take the people who are more likely to reoffend and then give them a tr- those people a treatment that makes them even more likely to reoffend. Like, the problem isn't necessarily that we're using computer predictions. The problem is we're predicting who's more likely to be worse off, and then we're giving them treatments to make them even worse off. So there's three issues. One, we're asking the wrong questions with these predictions. Two, there's the transparency issue. And then there's a separate issue of can these algorithms, can statistical actuarial predictions be more accurate than clinical predictions? And I think those are all three questions that need to be talked about. And I think they got a little bit mixed. And so that's all. Otherwise, it was a really eye-opening experience to someone who's generally, you know, in favor of data. It was uh, it was a good episode. I just I thought those got a little bit mixed up. All right. Take care. Bye, Jay. Hey, Jay. This is Jeff from Georgia. Um, I just wanted to make a point about your recent episode about immigration. Obviously, I know your show is called Best of the Left, and so it doesn't, you know, it can be center left to far left, and uh, that's understandable. But that general argument that uh, is being made in that episode, which is that, uh, you know, essentially we have to have a valid reason to have people come in as immigrants, and that can either be that, oh, well, they're not going to take, if they're, if they're, you know, low skilled, they're not going to take uh, low skilled Americans' jobs, and if they're high skilled, they're going to contribute to the country is a fundamentally I think just a false argument because we shouldn't need a reason like that to to allow immigrants in the reason should be we should help our fellow humans and I think that argument is fundamentally playing towards Republicans and uh, you know to to put it uh, bluntly I'm sick of having to justify uh, my beliefs to Republicans I think um, the left, broadly speaking, should be able to make cohesive arguments without appealing to uh, what individuals like to refer to as the Republican gaze, without looking <clears throat> with a Republican gaze. So that's just, you know, just my two cents uh, on the show as always, but I want to point that out, that uh, we don't need to uh, cater to Mitch McConnell and his ilk. We can make moral arguments for immigration without... Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to our production assistant, Joel McKean, and the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. A couple of quick responses today. First, Nick on algorithmic decision-making, to take his broad point, I certainly agree that because we can identify problems with 
algorithmic decision making does not mean we should throw out that concept. Uh, I, I certainly am in favor of using systems like that when it makes sense. There are all kinds of instances I can think of, uh, particularly um, medical diagnoses, I, I think are a good one. Uh, the, the way I've, I've heard that described, I, I think it must have been from Yuval Noah Harari on his sort of one of his books predicting what will happen in the future, talking about how, you know, a doctor could spend every moment of their lives constantly studying the latest information and trying to be as up to date as possible and to become the, the, the best diagnostic doctor in the world. And they would never, ever, ever be as good as a computer that's hooked up to a worldwide database of studies and research that constantly updates and alerts every every diagnosing computer in the world here's what we diagnosed here is how we treated it here are the results and and completely you know perpetually feeding that back into a loop to get better and better and better uh, medical results that's one of those things where uh, you, you know you can you can see where there could be problems but like trying to cure diseases i think doesn't have the same sort of pitfalls as this person has uh, wronged society. How should we punish them? You know, so when a disease is the thing the algorithm is trying to punish, we're in a lot better situation than we're, when you're trying to figure out how to punish a human. Uh, so, so, yeah, I, I can think of a lot of times when algorithmic decision making is going to be good. The way to enter this brave new world is cautiously and thoughtfully. So that, that's certainly the point that I would like to have made by, you know, the show or these, these further comments to clarify and, uh, and, and sort of similar response to Nick on the economics of immigration. I'm totally down with, with what, uh, with what Zach is saying. Did I say Nick? Anyway, Zach on uh, the economics of immigration. Um, I think it's worthwhile to understand the economics of immigration. And, and, you know, this is one of these uh, topics as the majority of them are that was suggested by a listener and, and voted on by other listeners as we do. And I, I, you know, I don't think it's a topic I had covered before specifically in that way with that kind of focus. And I think it's really good to have that information. It's good to know the reality that does not mean that, this is how we should make our argument. Now, if Zach was referring to something that was on the show where someone was using the economics of immigration in order to make the argument, that's going to be sort of uh, inevitable. It, it's pretty hard to find someone talking about the economics of immigration and not tying that to some argument about, therefore, what should we do about immigration? But I, I'm totally with Zach on his conclusion. Like, it doesn't matter. It does not matter what the economics of immigration are. That is not how we should be making our decisions. Uh, and I got to say, that sort of thing comes up a lot. Just the one off the top of my head, because it's such a prominent uh, topic right now, is uh, uh, Medicare for all, single-payer style healthcare. Like, yeah, it is also cheaper than our current system. But if we went around saying we want 
Medicare for all because it's cheaper, I think that that would be a horrible moral deficit in our argument. If it costs more, I would still be in favor of it because it's a better system with better outcomes. But it just so happens that what is right and good and moral is often also better in a variety of ways, including economic. So I'm glad we could clarify those uh, two little pieces of those topics. And now a quick reminder for you that I am already working on uh, another episode on the election with a focus on the white guys who are getting a lot of attention right now to to see what that's all about, let's say. And uh, I already asked in the previous episode, and I'll just say again, I would love to hear your thoughts about the election in general, how things are going. Uh, of course, maybe, hey, it's so early, we can't even know what to think is a perfectly legitimate uh, response. What are your thoughts about the women running who sort of got in early and have maybe begin, been getting less attention as of late? What do you think about the slew of white guys who have been getting into the race uh, more recently? Whatever thoughts you have, I would love to hear them. Keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash left. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Best of the Left.